Welcome to the Twin Geek Cast. I'm Calvin, your review editor, and I'm here with David. Hi, David here, the feature editor for Twin Geeks. Today we'll be looking at the box office top 10, the new Halloween film, and what we've recently been watching. Yeah, so, I mean, we know that Halloween's at the top kind of here, but we'll get around to that. Start at the bottom looking at, um, looks like Redford film, uh, The Old Man and the Gun, right? Yeah, uh... This is the one where Redford does the Gran Torino finger guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't seen too much about it, but I mean, I'm just surprised to see that Redford's still around and, you know, making big name films like this. He's old. <laughs> I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I owe it to him to go to his last film. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is necessarily his last film. I don't know. Is this a Daniel Day-Lewis situation where he said it's his last or what? But it seems like you it. You think he's... You think he's faking retirement for box office numbers? No, no. You mean Lewis or Redford? Both. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, at number nine, we have Bad Times at the El Royale. Mm-hmm. This was uh, Drew Goddard's newest film, right? This is the first thing he's directed since Cabin in the Woods in 2012, right? Yeah, it had about a seven-year development. It, uh, it kind of shows in the film. Uh, it has so many different ideas, and it's kind of like Tarantino with better... Re- writing and uh drew goddard i think is a very intellectual filmmaker i think between cabin in the woods and this he makes a good argument for subverting hollywood tropes yeah i definitely think it's interesting that you mentioned you know his his better writings in tarantino because he is known predominantly as a writer as opposed to directing you know this is only his second feature i think right yeah and it is a writer's film um you could tell the way that the plot devices are framed, and it has these sequences that go between different characters to show a new perspective of the same shot. So, just like Tarantino in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. you're drawing back and you're looking at a the same death sequence in five different ways, and it's kind of amazing. But uh, after that, it kind of plods along and goes a little bit too long. It's a bit baggy. Mm-hmm. It's got a great cast looking here, too. You know, I love anything with Jeff Bridges, but you also got John Hamm and uh, Dakota Johnson and Chris Hemsworth and Nick Offerman even, I see here. Wow. Yeah, Jeff Bridges is fantastic as a maybe a preacher. He's kind of a roguish preacher. We could mm-hmm. call him that. I don't want to spoil too much, but uh, Chris Hemsworth shows off to uh, shows up to show off his abs. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a great cast. Uh, they all put in good work. Um, at number eight, we have Night School, the um, Tiffany Haddish and Kevin Hart vehicle. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned that a little bit briefly last week, huh? Looks pretty generic. Yeah. Um, I mean, the tagline for it is like Kevin Hart saying, this is Breakfast Club for Adults, which sounds okay. Um, I, I think it's that. interesting to have a Breakfast Club for a black culture, uh, you know, that kind of... Um, I kind of hate when uh, films do that, though, when they, you know, they want to describe themselves as other films. It just kind of makes me <laughs> like that. It's, it's kind of a really poor way to describe things. And there's a good joke like that in The Player, you know, where they keep doing that over and over, and that's how they keep describing other films. God, I can't remember. There, there's a hilarious one, but I don't remember. <laughs> the best thing you could say about your film is it's derivative of something else. Right. That's fantastic. <laughs> I do recommend Tiffany Haddish's book, The Last Black Unicorn. I think her come up like on the comedy scene is interesting, and I think she's very funny, but I don't like her movies. Mm-hmm. Um, at number seven, we have Smallfoot. You have any thoughts on that? It's a animated Yeti film, 
Um, we haven't had that yet. I don't know what we should, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we ever needed it, but right. um, it comes from the... I think it's is it same studio as the Lego movie, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, though, but it's not the same guys, right? It's not Lord and Miller behind it, I don't think. No, it, maybe it's a... I don't even know what it is. Maybe it's a B project before a, the second Lego movie. Maybe. Um, no is, real interest, but... Uh, I'll watch it on video on demand. Mm-hmm, maybe your kid will like it. Oh yeah, yeah, she'll love it. <laughs> uh, at number six, we have the Hate You Give, uh, which I haven't seen yet, but the title's a take off on the Tupac, uh, you know, the whole Tupac thing, the Thug Life, uh, mm-hmm. the Hate You Give, uh, you know, like the Hate You Give children just fucks everyone or whatever he says. Right. Um, I don't know how to feel about it. The book's been a bestseller forever. It seems like a way to um, show a different take on political ideas for youth mm-hmm. and kind of a commentary on that, so I'm looking forward to getting to it. Um, at number five, we have First Man, which I just saw in IMAX. Um, it's pretty incredible take from the same director as Whiplash. Damien uh, Chazelle, yeah. Yeah, Chazelle, and I don't think it's as strong as either of his previous movies, uh, but it has the same kind of character journey as La La Land or Whiplash, so I was kind of in it for that. I think it's an interesting departure for him because his first two films were entirely, you know, just kind of grounded in this, you know, music-centric idea, and that really seems like Chazelle's background, that's where he comes from, and that's what made Whiplash so strong in the first place, so doing something that's a complete departure, doing, you know... uh, a space, you know, biopic, essentially. It's not space, but, yeah, it's an entirely different thing. Like, you know, no stepping stone to get there. Just kind of thrown into the deep end over there. So, I think just the fact... I think grounded is an interesting word for this one, too, because uh, it's not it's not really space-born until, like, the last ten minutes of the movie. Uh, it has some failed test flights and, you know, uh, one flight that's a prior success, but... As far as the story goes, it's mostly just Neil Armstrong's family and uh, the grief they experience when uh, they lose their young girl and then, you know, then the dad's out in space and the mom's home parenting alone. Uh, So it's a different kind of space movie. Mm -hmm. Probably definitely different than a lot of the the epics you kind of get that are kind of in awe of the giantess of space itself where the sound's like a much more, you know, kind of Oh, I guess we said grounded movie. It doesn't seem impressed by space at all, which is partly to its credit, but also, I don't know, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. Um, at number four, we got Goosebumps 2, Haunted Halloween. I have no real interest in this. Uh, I'm surprised it's doing so well. Yeah, you know, it's that kind of kid money, I guess. You know, market anything to the child audience, and it'll make the money. The first movie is a pretty good version of some of R.L. Stein's older stories uh, has some of the beasts from the east uh, the night of the living dummy I think it's called mm-hmm. I don't know if you read any of those I think I read a little but man if I didn't read them young enough to not really remember them now but what it seems like is that the first film probably used up majority if not all of the, the good material from Stein stuff and then you kind of just got the leftovers for two I think they used everything, and then they're like, shit, it's successful, now we gotta make another. <laughs> um, then at number three, we got Venom having another strong week. 
Man, Venom could keep going, I don't know, all year at this point? Who knows? <laughs> I think it'll be like the great, the greatest showman. It'll just go into next year. Mm-hmm. Just uh, terrorize the charts. Much like... V- much like Venom taking over Tom Hardy, it's going to eat away at these charts. Mm-hmm. It's interesting still, because seriously, nobody expected Venom to do this good. Everyone knew th- thought it was going to be a flop. They were so certain. I'm, I'm just glad I didn't bet money on that. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, the only people that have been in its corner have been Sony. They've been trying for, since the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, to actually make a Venom movie. So that finally came through, and... I don't know, he's an aesthetic creature, I guess. Yeah. There's a... It's polling diverse audiences, that's cool. There's definitely There's... A, a physical appeal to Venom as a character, it seems. You know, as far as any depth, he doesn't really have much, but he's cool, and that's what people want, it's working. And it's an interesting October re- release. It's kind of a body horror movie. Uh, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it really conveys that in any of the trailers, but it gets into some pretty cool body horror, and... Uh, disassociative stuff for tom hardy that's interesting you know especially the kind of body horror angle we haven't seen a lot of great stuff like that since you know cronenberg's work probably the last really good stuff maybe in the early 90s i'm not saying venom's like cronenberg no of course not (laughs) it's just that would be ridiculous well that's the immediate thing you think of when someone says body horror you're like videodrome or for the fly or whatever (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and uh number two we got a star is born uh, I'm pretty tired of hearing about it. How about you? Uh, a, a little bit, but you know, people seem to be enjoying it. It's not like the first time people have gone nuts over you know a Star Is Born film. It's a really popular story to tell and retell and retell, and it seems like this one was retold well enough. You know, yeah. there's, there's always going to be movies that are going to be popular and talked about forever that I'm just like, oh my god, stop. <laughs> It has the one song in it, The Shallows, that's also eating up music charts. Uh, It's done, I think it's been by far the best uh, selling album for a film in a very long time. Uh, But the whole movie, I was just sitting there waiting for that song to come back because it has that giant hook and, you Mm -hmm. know, watching it in Dolby, I was just ready for, to get blown away by Gaga and I kind of spent the whole movie waiting in some way for something big and then, uh, I was let down by the ending. Finally, at number one, we have Halloween, which has taken an impressive box office gross for the first weekend. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I know it's coming up on what Venom did. Venom just broke a record, and it's released earlier this month, and now Halloween's trying to do the same. And it's, you know, doing really well. People are really excited for this new Halloween film. It's interesting, because throughout the year, we've had huge horror releases, but... All of them have been outside the usual holiday because studios found out that A Quiet Place or Hereditary can work early in the year. They don't have to sit in October. Even like Get Out last year, that was what, a February release? And that was huge. It broke its own, you know, records on its own. It's really a renaissance of horror going on right now. And, you know, I say bring it on. Yeah, and it's interesting, like Suspiria is going into next month. Nobody cares anymore. They're all getting out of the way for Halloween. And it's working out for Halloween. Mm-hmm. It's a shame, though. They they really should have bumped that release up for Suspiria. That makes no sense to do it a couple days after. Why are they doing that? <laughs> yeah, I'm bummed about it. But I think that uh, if it feeds off the critical reception, then uh, maybe they could do something with it. Maybe so. We'll see. But, 
You know, we also watched Halloween this, uh, well, just yesterday, in fact, so that's actually our movie of the week to talk about. Yeah, we both watched it uh, together last night. At a, we went to a Dolby screening uh, at a AMC, and I guess we both have a lot of opinions on it. Uh, I don't think we're entirely together on some of them, but I think we both agree on a lot of the good and bad parts. A lot of ideas. There's definitely a lot to talk about this film, not only as a film itself, but also in the context of the franchise of Halloween and everything going on there, what this film wanted to be, what it is actually, and all that. You know, there's a whole lot going on here, and I can't wait to get into it. I guess we should start with David Gordon Green. Just as a director, he has a uh, it's first time working around horror, but um, you know Blumhouse has been pulling comedy guys to work on their horror franchise, franchises since Get Out. So uh, he's an interesting fit for the project. Well, I thought what was an interesting thing about this time around was like this wasn't somebody approaching someone to do a Halloween movie. You know, this wasn't the studio looking to revive the franchise or anything. This was David Gordon Green and Danny McBride saying, we've got a good Halloween idea. Let's write a script and let's go talk to John Carpenter and see what he thinks. And they did that and they took it to him and Carpenter approved it and then everything started going ahead. And with Carpenter's blessing, that's when everyone really started getting excited, thinking this is going to be good. Carpenter's back in the picture. We got people who care about it right in the film. We're going to get a good Halloween film for once. I think according to interviews, Carpenter's just, he's a laid back retired guy at this point. I feel like he came in, composed a little bit of music, and then just kind of signed off on, uh, you know, the basics of, okay, you're making the right references to my films. <laughs> it seems like, I mean, they definitely captured the spirit of, of Halloween more so in terms of, you know, aesthetic, I think, and, you know, the, the, the raw, you know, material, the scares, the evil aspects of it. But, you know, there's more in the, the fine details that I think E.B. touched on more, but I guess we will get to that a bit more within the film. Absolutely. Uh, I think the one of the main things to talk about is Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie. She's, I think she's a pretty phenomenal actress, and she shows up as, I think, one of the greatest final girls in this film, however you feel about it. Yeah, you know, people always want to talk about, you know, the best final girls, and it always comes down to Laurie Strode and Ellen Ripley. And, you know, Ellen's great and everything, um, but, you know, I don't think she has quite the clout that Laurie does in lots of ways. That might be controversial to say, but I think Aliens kind of changes her position as a final girl more so because of how much more charge Ripley takes. Oh, yeah, I'd take Alien every day of the week. I, I guess here we should say that Laurie's been waiting 40 years. Um, we're erasing all the previous Halloweens. Uh, her own end in Resurrection, Michael's end in H2O. Uh, we're erasing two and all the trauma that he's experienced. But instead, now we're just focused on Laurie's trauma. She's been sitting with this for 40 years, just waiting for Michael. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, Jamie Lee Curtis does such a fantastic job of expressing and emoting this like there's some really great moments of her acting throughout where she not only shows the strength of her character and she's kind of fortifying herself waiting for michael's return but also the the actual trauma of it like you see her have several moments where she just can't handle things or breaks down thinking about it and, and i think it's um a significant problem with the film that it takes takes about 20 minutes to really get into her and start um 
you know, it starts with these podcasters going around and uh, kind of looking for Michael, exploring his evil. But uh, I feel like instead we could have opened with, uh, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and had some powerful, uh, powerful moment to set the tone for what the film actually is. Right. Instead, you know, it, it was very apparent from the beginning of the film that Green McBride wanted to make a movie about Michael Myers more so than they did about Laurie. She's not as present in the film as it, you know, it starts off with approaching Michael at the mental hospital. These podcasters come in, they talk to this, you know, uh, doctor that is presiding over Michael in Loomis's, you know, absence. And yeah, there's this, uh, there's this big prison sequence, right? That's uh, maybe one of the better shots of the film, but I think we both agree it's kind of self-contained in a weird way where it looks like a big chessboard playing out as they approach Michael and the guy brings out his mask. All the other prisoners start rattling in their, you know, in their chains. And yeah, everything goes crazy uh, with the the mask, almost in a supernatural manner. Sirens start going off and everything. Everyone's going nuts. And it's, it's a weird moment and Michael doesn't react at all. I found it weird, kind of very contradictory with a later moment where they say Michael didn't react at all, and he didn't, but I think the whole idea we were supposed to take away as an audience from the scene is that, you know, the the evil was rising between the connection of Michael and the mask, so to say that he didn't react at all is kind of, I don't know, it felt contradictory to me because that was what all the commotion was to me, anyway, it was the evil coming to the surface. And it inserts a kind of power in it, while also... Nearly humanizing Michael, uh, they kind of come around on his goatee a little bit. We don't get a full frontal shot of a of his face or anything. So, mm-hmm. um, it's probably the the most of Michael's face we see. You know, I think probably throughout the the franchise, there's definitely a lot of them. And I I, I did appreciate in some aspects because when I went to the movie, it kind of occurred to me that. The 40-year gap means that Michael is an old man. He's in his 60s at this point. And so showing the fact that he was there, like I, I was able to believe that the 60-year-old man was still able to kind of run around and do things based on the physique they gave us. But fortunately, they only gave us enough to kind of have that idea of human but no humanity. Like we never see his eyes. And if I think if we hadn't seen his eyes, that would have killed the illusion. And that's one thing this film does do. It pays credence to those things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, attempts to get that sense of Michael Myers back. And I think that was really what Green and McBride's aim was, as you can see by the focus on Myers throughout the majority of the film. Then Michael escapes through a very convoluted uh, bus sequence. Uh, it plays out with his uh, dad and his child going into the woods, and there's this weird scene where the kid's are like, oh, you know... I don't want to go hunting in the middle of the night with you, Dad. I'd rather be doing dance classes. Yeah, that was such a weird thing because it felt not only like a very out of place comedic moment. Like, I mean, it, it felt more like McBride's and you know their comedy background seeping through, but also just very out of place in general in the film because the character interactions don't matter; they don't amount to anything. And I, I can imagine in my head the scene being so much stronger if you just switch the perspective to the doctor character in the bus, you know, as this kid comes up and, you know, is looking around for his dad who's gone missing or whatever, and then he gets shot. And what are you all doing going hunting at midnight? Uh, What are you actually doing with this kid? That creep? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's it's a lot of weird stuff. I mean, and all that stuff is more or less nitpicky, but typically you don't start to nitpick things until you're kind of taken out of the film a little bit. Like, you know, all those minor things that usually wouldn't amount to anything start to matter once, you know, there's not a huge payoff to kind of make up for it. And I feel like this film was inviting that in some way. I mean, the way it was playing into its own history, uh, the way that there were so many minute side characters that don't amount to shit, like this little kid. Like, why is he in this story? Uh, he doesn't have any depth. Uh, he's just there for a punchline and a death. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have any reason to care about uh, the earliest death in the film, which means that maybe they don't matter very much in the course of the film. You know, it, it was just a weird thing because there's lots of other moments like that where there's just these moments of characters, you know, having this seemingly normal conversation, I guess, that's meant to be comedic or lighthearted in juxtaposition of all the horror stuff going on, but it's not placed in the right areas. Like, it's not moments of levity. It's just moments of comedy kind of shoehorned in. Yeah, it feels like you have really great comedic writers um, working toward... a idea of a slasher but not making an actual slasher it's like they're playing with the nostalgia to make something new but they're not achieving it yeah i think lots of little details like that like i remember there's another detail comedy thing was the money thing once the podcasters come to Lori strode's home and they're trying to get an interview with her you know with uh michael you know about michael and they, rather. yeah they sit at her gate they're like can we come in she's like no no interest they're like Here's $3,000, and it doesn't really go anywhere. She gives it to her granddaughter for college funds, or she'll Mm -hmm. probably go blow it on weed or whatever. Who cares? I think that was actually one interesting thing right before she gives her the money, is that you got that recreation of that shot of you got the granddaughter looking out the window while she's in school, and she sees Lori out there, and it's shot exactly the same way as in the original when Lori sees Michael. And it's a really interesting concept they have they put the seeds there for of this idea of Lori kind of being the monster instead of michael in some ways but they don't really go too much into it there's hints of it and did you hear that chucklehead behind us in the theater that must have been his favorite part he yeah he's like oh that's a nostalgia i could relate to i remember seeing her in the classroom there's a lot of moments of that where it's like that's the same shot that's the same shot let's pull that shot from another halloween film and some of them are good, some of them are, you know, they, they cut a lot of tension out of things or, you know, and all that because you know what's going to happen. I think they're just uh, a little bit misjudged. I think they're done with good intention, but uh, I don't feel like they're judged properly for where they're placed in the story. They're just uh, there to show something of nostalgia and to bring those fans in. But really, if you haven't seen those movies, it's only going to take you out. And if you have seen them, it's going to remind you of movies you might rather be watching right i think some of them have interesting ideas like i said with the lori being the monster aspect instead is that callback but not all of them are imbued with that kind of inspirational subtext uh did you like did you like the podcasters in the movie you know i don't i didn't think so too much they weren't the worst characters by any means but they seemed out of place for certain and you know obviously didn't amount to anything I like what your uh, fiance was saying, who also went with us to the screening, that they they were just British for their otherness. They had no real um, material purpose or connection to the story. Um, they're kind of taking off on the, you know, the vibes going on in radio right now. Like, Serial is the big show. Um, 
true crime fiction is uh, the biggest genre of show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, so, you got stuff like Making a Murderer as well. There's a, as there kind of always has been, this obsession with serial killers and trying to understand them. I just don't feel like they authentically positioned it like they were making a podcast. Uh, I wish it went somewhere much larger than just the interview and then... Um, I just don't see why they matter that much to the story. Yeah, but they did end up, uh, I guess, paying off a little bit because their sequences, their their death sequences in particular, were one of the better moments in the film in the the gas station bathroom stalls there. That whole sequence is my favorite part of the movie. It's fascinating because it does multiple things. It allows, uh, it establishes that Michael could take the mask from the podcast guy, that he could steal the coveralls from a mechanic, and then we get an awesome H2O uh, reference while in the bathroom, basically recreating that scene at the rest stop where uh, where Michael comes in. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's full of tension. That's, that's the only time I even felt even remotely tense about the movie. Yeah, I think what was really good about that sequence in particular was the uh, reservation they had up until when Michael stepped into the bathroom because... The, the deaths and the mechanics and whatnot aren't even ever seen. Like, you hear a little yeah. bit of it, but the, the actual aftermath of their deaths, you know, them lying in the pools of their blood, only come across when the male podcaster, you know, stumbles upon them. And I think that was a really effective use of, you know, uh, showing, you know, how less is more, essentially. And I feel like they played it up perfectly. Like, you just, you're, like, inside the stall with the girl, uh, and the toilets are covered with, like, shit and vomit, and it's just a... Uh, it's just the most gruesome scene. Then Michael comes around and he drops the what is it like the teeth over teeth. into the stall. The teeth, yeah, the teeth were a little weird to me. Like, <laughs> like that was the kind of the only standout moment. I'm like, why, why teeth here? But you know, it was probably the goriest kill in the film. Probably just that general sequence when he was bashing the male reporter's head against like the walls and everything. Like I felt that that was intense. Yeah, I mean, we saw it also worth noting in Dolby. So. Uh, I don't feel like it, I feel like it showed more that the film was mixed oddly, but there were sequences like that bashing scene or Mm -hmm. gunshots, which really uh, had more impact. Yeah, I I felt my chair actually vibrate with those and that was nice. I don't know if it was worth it for the whole experience, but it improved in some some areas. We're saying that's when Michael gets the mask back. Uh, I really like the mask in this movie and I like the uh, direction he's taken. Mm-hmm. The the mask moment is very great when he finally puts on the mask in. It almost feels like coming home in this sense because it, it just looks great on him. You know, it looks very aged as well, It's but it still has the same characteristics as the original mask. What's really important to me in, in the Michael Myers mask in particular is that you can't see the eyes. It needs to be these voids of eyes because that's where all the emotion's at, and Michael can't have emotion like that. So the fact that he has, like, it's just complete dark, it's perfect. And it's a hard thing to establish that a mask has just been sitting around for 40 years, but it does look aged, and it does look like it has the history of uh, of an old, dark story in it. I remember seeing a detail um, somewhere that someone pointed out, like, from the trailer thing a while ago, is that the mask has the coat hanger puncture in the neck from the first film, which I oh, think is a nice detail. Absolutely, it has the original scarring, but 
I feel like they were also able to overcome any uh, history that the mask had from all the other movies. Uh, it has an interesting history looking through all the films because none of them really look all the same, which is weird. Yeah. They all have minor differences, but this is one of my favorites, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And the mask is, you know, I mean, it feels like I guess we're spending a lot of time on it, but it's a crucial part of the character. You know, part of the reason that Michael is so iconic of an image of a character is just because of that, that blank look, that soulless emptiness. The mask is key to that. And it's taking someone like William Shatner, and not even like uh, the Star Trek version, but like of a weird horror movie he was doing at the time where he's just like this bloated guy and looked nothing like his character. So they took that weird uh, deformation of his own character and turned it into a horror icon, which is really interesting to me yeah and especially since it's just you know it was a it was a low budget kind of fix thing they're just like well we need a creepy mask let's see what we can do um and a couple other masks show up we get the halloween 3 mask which filled me with joy for a few moments that was nice to see just it's a small detail i remember catching it in the trailer before the film as well but seeing it in the film as well was nice just you know and there's lots of little details like that and it's a good one because it doesn't call a lot of attention to itself it just says, hey, look at this in the background, you know. So I think we both agree that, you know, Michael is one of the biggest assets, but there are a lot of characters sprinkled in, uh, especially with Lori's family that I didn't really find agreeable. Yeah, that's probably the biggest, uh, at least one of the biggest problems of the film is that some of the family aspects don't work. It's a little bloated in terms of how many characters and what their arcs and relationships are supposed to be. Yeah, we have Judy Greer playing uh, her daughter, and she looks a little bit like her. I think we established that she was probably cast based on looks instead of uh, maybe her ability to perform. And about- yeah, she she was just pretty awful in this as far as an actress. There were some line readings that were absolutely bonkers. God, she she had horrible readings the entire film. I thought, mm-hmm. and the, well, the biggest problem I think as well is that and probably with a lot of the character arcs as well, is that they establish this idea of something that would be good for the character, but they don't really expand on it. So Judy Greer's character as the daughter was apparently, she went through this tough childhood where Laurie basically trained her to become this killing machine or whatever, just be entirely overprepared. And it doesn't really amount to anything in her character. You don't see that reflected in anything. There's a moment late in the film where she grabs a rifle off of the wall and it has, like, her initials or whatever from, like, her childhood gun, I assume. But it wasn't really set up at all, so it doesn't feel like a payoff. (laughs) Yeah, why does it matter? Uh, That's that's my question for a lot of this movie is why do characters matter? Uh, Mm -hmm. And her daughter, um, I guess, uh, Laurie's granddaughter, um, Allison, she's... She's horribly cast also, I thought. Uh, she has some of the worst readings in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things as well, I think it's not necessarily just the readings as well, is that the actual dialogue is written very poorly. There are lots of moments where it's just, you know, explaining things characters already know to each other. Yeah. You know, there, there was that whole bit I remember with Judy Greer where she's basically just like, and she explains to her daughter, that's why I, you know, I'm this way. This is what I had to live with or whatever after, you know, Lori comes in and makes a mess at dinner. Yeah, there's there's so much exposition between characters that it's like the film refuses to show us anything. And it wants to tell us everything about uh, 
everything about the characters' relations to each other, except sometimes it gets it wrong. Like, uh, didn't we think uh, Allison at one point said, uh, that's your grandmother. Oh, to your oh my mother. god, yeah, that was such a weird moment. It stood out at the dinner scene um, when uh, they're out at dinner or whatever it is, and the granddaughter... And I guess that's another thing is I can't remember all these characters' names. The granddaughter says to her mom, you know, did you invite your grandmother along or something like that? I heard your, that word, distinctly, uh, you know, misreading. And you said you faintly heard it as well. I thought so, but I I tried to defer to you to make sure I wasn't just imagining shit. Because mm-hmm. I, that would I seem could like be just... wrong still, but it sounded crystal clear to me, which was like, I can't believe they would leave this in the film that's so God, obvious. <laughs> I sure hope it was wrong, but uh, I thought maybe it was an or. But either way, Allison's relation to her mom seems very distant. I don't even believe they're a family. No, you know, sometimes, sometimes you get like a family unit. Like her dad is like, "Oh, I'm this big sports guy, and I'm gonna relate to your new boyfriend as a man." And her mom's seen some trauma from a vicarious perspective. But none of them fit together in any family way. No, no you, you don't see any relation between it. And I think one of the biggest reasons is, and just in general across the film, the hard reason you have a, an idea of establishing relationship between characters is because of the way the film is shot. Because it's shot awfully, especially oh, yeah. within conversations. Every single conversation in the film is super tight close-ups that cut sporadically back and forth without any sense between as to why you would cut away. They'll cut away in mid-sentence from characters to, you know, someone sort of reacting, I guess, and then cut back, and it doesn't have any significance. It never frames them together in any interesting way that implies anything about relationship. Some of the shots give context to uh, sort of background, and they establish a territory, but they rarely establish a relationship between characters. You know, you know, it was about, like, the first 15 minutes or so when I started noticing something was off in the conversations. And I kind of had to take a step back from the film to see. Because usually I don't, you know, take a moment to notice the cinematography of conversations in particular, you know, if I'm just sucked into the film. But in this particular case, I was not. So I was noticing how tight every single shot was. Very close, you know, from, like, the top of the head to the bottom of the uh, chin there. You know, and there's no real reason for why. You don't even get a sense of their body posture. It was baffling. And the way, the way it cuts out between them, it just feels like line readings. It doesn't feel like they're ever engaged in a particular conversation. Mm-hmm. There's no actions ever in the conversation to demonstrate yeah. anything. It's just, you know, words coming out constantly. And it was so irritating to watch. It is a such a frustrating movie to watch it. I feel like that's the most grating thing is the cinematography is bad. I feel like if you gave the film a good look and shot everything well, then you might have something else on your hands. But the editing was also, uh, I thought, terribly done. It it was all over the place, and things were inserted sporadically just to, like, okay, it's been five minutes, we need, we need another callback now. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the other big things, and I guess sins in editing and, you know, pacing as well, is that there are a lot more jump scares in this film than there should be. There, there are probably, what, four or five jump scares? None of them really work. Yeah, probably, you know, and they come up a lot more, and they're just so forecasted is the problem. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know, I remember one where 
you know, this babysitter goes to check out the closet and she's just talking, oh, what are you doing here and whatnot, and it's just so obvious that nothing is going to happen. There's no tension at all because you can predict everything. And forecasting is the perfect word for it because it's, you know, it signposts everything it's about to do. Uh, You've seen a Halloween film before, then you've seen this. Uh, There's going to be no real suspense. Um, It doesn't really do anything terribly new. It's one of the, I think as long as you understand the character of Michael Myers and kind of what his M.O. is, you'll know exactly what's going to happen. When a character is approaching a closet that they think Michael's in, you know he's not in it because that's what Michael Myers does. Yeah, why would he ever be in the closet? Because he's not going to go the place that you ever think he is. Mm-hmm. I, I guess going back to the cinematography for a moment, you know, it's pretty egregious throughout the whole film. But there is one moment of inspired creativity, and that is, of course, the the one long take that they have in about the middle of the film. I think it's perfectly done. I, I was just filled with excitement as he was walking toward the shed and going to pick up the hammer. Then all mm-hmm. of a sudden we get a quick cut out of the long take. That was disappointing. I feel like that was almost <laughs> a, like an interference thing. I'm like, oh, come on, you set it up perfectly here. Because I think that was interesting. It was very obvious that they were about to start a one-take, which isn't always bad. You know, it's a stylized thing. So sometimes they want to kind of wink at the audience and say, hey, check out what we're doing, especially in a Halloween case where it's very famous for its one-take. But, you know, the fact that they kind of cut out right after he got the hammer to go into the inside of the house, I was like, ah, man, you you messed it up just a little bit. But the the rest of the one-take is fantastic still, despite that. Yeah, I feel like if you accomplish the full scope of it, then uh, then you'd pull something back in. I can't wait to see what the full scene looked like if we ever get that. Hopefully, he... ho- hopefully that was the case and that it was, in fact, a whole take and not just that they started it. Because the thing is, is that Michael starts outside of the house when he goes to get the hammer, and then he ends the one take, leaving the house and outside on the street again. So it's clear that they set it up in this very, you know, uh, obvious manner. Yeah, and the way that it follows him through the house is fantastically done. Uh, it is probably, it is it has to be the best shot of the film. I um, think absolutely, yeah. And I know you had some problems as he went through the house. Uh, <laughs> we see, you know, like his first murders and then uh, then he comes to the baby. Yeah, well, that, that was the thing is that he came, uh, what was nice about the one take is that, you know, it showed it from a variety of different angles. It wasn't just following Michael the whole time, like I guess the first one was. You know, it comes in the house, follows Michael, and then he goes off to the side and murders, you know, the woman uh, off camera. Which is great because then when they keep going, you know, and following Michael through the room, you see the aftermath of it. But then, I mean, it wasn't so much a big issue, but I kind of just wish they had gone for it because they tease this idea where he comes up to the baby screaming in the rocker or whatever it is. And, and you, know, you know, you see him just stare for a moment and it makes you wonder, is Michael really going to kill a baby? Oh my god. And he he, he doesn't. They tease it for just that moment, and they're like, nah, nah, Michael wouldn't kill a baby. And I'm like, damn, don't do that to me. I would love them to see, just to see them have the balls to have Michael Myers kill a baby. Well, firstly, you're a monster. And secondly, secondly, I thought, I saw that's when you kind of got agitated. That's when you seemed to turn against the film in some way. A little bit. I mean, it didn't bother me, like, all that much, I guess, but I, I kind of just wish they had gone that, because it was just a little bit of a tease there. And I think that would have been interesting. You know, it would have been something that would frustrate a lot of people, because nobody wants to see a baby get killed. But 
I, I would have liked to see them make that bold choice. Absolute monster. <laughs> well, the shot continues. It goes into, because it goes into another house, I believe, as well. Or it's the same. I can't quite remember. But, oh, no, he, do, he does go. He does go outside. because And then they have the shot outside the window. And I think that was really nice where the it continues to be a one-shot, but it plants itself. Where Michael goes around the side of the house there and comes in and kills a woman. Yeah, yeah, that was that was extremely well done. Um, then, uh, but then it progresses and we go back to some of the uh, side characters. Um, we have Allison's school dance, which is inconsequential to the whole thing. I think. Yeah, I think one of the biggest issues is that if you haven't noticed, you know, for quite some time, even just talking about the film, Lori has not come up at all. And that's because she largely disappears from the film during the second act. And it focuses on the granddaughter and Michael Myers' killing spree a lot more. Which is really frustrating when the grand, uh, granddaughter character doesn't matter come the third act. She doesn't really do anything or have any place in it. So all this time we spend with her during the second act and the school dance with all our friends and anything is really just there so that Michael has people to kill. Yeah, and uh, Allison isn't even that developed in the film. Uh, you're right that that's, that's a big critique we could get for the film, is that we should be talking about Laurie this whole time. This is a movie about her grief, and we really have nothing to say about her yet. Because mm-hmm. it's not going to come around until like, the third act, where she finally gets to deal with all the Michael stuff. Instead, we have this school dance thing with a you know cliche shitty boyfriend who cheats on her at the prom or dance or whatever it is and then you got her almost you know like the other friend who's comforting her it's all just very cliche teenage shenanigans and it doesn't matter and it's frustrating and there was never any suggestion that there was a problem between her and the boyfriend like the boyfriend's a little bit too buddy buddy with her dad but it's very much a movie where all the men are kind of shitbags anyway, so it's not that surprising that the boy just turns out to be a dick. But well, They try and play it off like it was a drunk act as well, like he was just a little drunk, and then he ends up being a dick. He throws her phone in the punch bowl. Yeah, right? <laughs> What's that about? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Especially, yeah, that... like, I, th- I thought the confusing thing was that you can still hear the phone ringing in the punch bowl. Like, maybe it still works. I don't know. It, it, and it felt like this weird predatory moment, moment as well, almost, because it seemed like the only reason she couldn't get to the phone was because he'd probably do something if she tried to go for it. And that's why she yeah. left. Yeah, they had a stare down, and it seemed like he's getting into abusive territory, which is uh, really neither... It doesn't have any purpose. Uh, I think that the other films had a sexualization about them. They were about punishing... Uh, punishing people for sexual acts and virgins surviving. So this one has a different take where it's punishing men for being reprehensible. Yeah, you know, it was weird. There was actually very little sex, and almost, like, obviously so. There's that moment where the other guy comes to join the babysitter, and he's like, I got a tattoo of you, and and she says something about dry-fucking him for it. And it's like, what? What kind of, you know, messed up, you know, repentance is that, essentially? <laughs> I know, he doesn't even get lube. It's... Yeah. It's, I, thought, it's... I thought the oh. tattoo was such a stupid detail, because eventually he gets stabbed through the throat and he's hanging there, and, and the whole tattoo is just uh, 10 2018 It's like, that's what you get dry-fucked for? Is Man. that what it said? Okay, I didn't even yeah. see that, because I was yeah. busy looking at the 
awful looking CG from the knife in his throat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it, <laughs> there was some reaction in our theater. Like, oh, I couldn't tell if it was in disgust or just a mm-hmm. general distaste for how the movie was framing it. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but there was actually some good moments within that babysitter stuff before he showed up because you got the actual relationship between the babysitter girl and the, the little kid who's got some attitude to him. He has a personality. He's like the one person in the movie with personality. Yeah, that, that kid exudes confidence. I think he's the best actor in the film, which yeah, is uh, it, ridiculous. I found it a little weird because he kind of like walks this balance of sometimes he's like a little kid who needs his babysitter to look after him, but sometimes he's just totally confident, knows what he's talking about, watches porn apparently, kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, uh, well, she she gets the call from the school dance, like, oh, we want to come over, and she's like, oh, we got the Alakazam or whatever she says, and the boy's like, <laughs> abracadabra, and the boy's like, oh, you're talking about that weed, huh? Yeah, like he's a kid who obviously knows about stuff, but at the same time he's scared of the bohemian in the closet. Right. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a, a weird thing there, but the pro- the thing was is that he had enough personality and likability to him that I honestly didn't care if it didn't match up, and the film was missing that in all other respects. And the boy, I love the line where the boy's just like, I'm just going to clip my damn toes, or whatever he said. <laughs> yeah. That, what was he says? Nasty-ass toenails, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one uh, Danny McBride uh, line that won me over, I think. Mm-hmm. That worked really well. And, you know, the murder stuff with um, him there was pretty good, but those were also the moments where the... F- Stuff was very much so forecasted. That was the moment where I was talking about where she goes and checks in the closet and she's faking it and whatnot. And the other problem is, as well, is that the actual kill of that scene where Michael's behind the door or, and he comes out is you know about because he saw the trailer. They give away that whole moment in the trailer. Oh, they absolutely do. That moment's one that survives basically only on the music. Uh, whatever sting was in there as she's like crawling away on the floor it was just beautifully yep. inserted. That was a great moment. There's a lot of great usage of the music in here, which we'll definitely talk about once uh, we wrap up with the plot here, I think, because we got a lot more to say about the music as an individual. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, apart from that, we have other interesting characters, like Dr. Sartan. What do you think? I thought he was a bit, you know, boring for the most part, you know, for the beginning. It's like they even call him point oh, He's the new Loomis, which is so on the nose to say, but... Yeah, he, he is for the majority. And at one point, though, and this is a more controversial moment, I know a lot, I've seen a lot of people not like this, but he totally turns. And, you know, when they run over Michael, um, you know, and the, the sheriff's going out to check on him, and he's going to try and go finish Michael off, Dr. Um, Sartin, like, whips out this pen and stabs him in the neck and kills him. And, and he talks about feeling like this bloodless, like trying to get behind the evil of Michael and understand it. And he even puts on the mask for a moment. And then that yeah. was like, that is an interesting angle to go about it. At the very least, it's different. I don't want to see a Loomis clone. I want to see something that's different. And they went with that for a little bit, but then Michael just kills him. <laughs> I mean, God love uh, Donald Pleasance, but, you know, there was really no real motivation or reason for him to care about Michael. Michael's always been a mute. He uh, never had lines in the movies till the last Rob Zombie, which is a piece of shit. But uh, <laughs> then I felt like having this crazy guy more obsessed with his um, psychology and his relationship to murder made it more interesting. But also, <laughs> it also graded on me eventually. 
I, I can definitely see that because they don't give that enough the whole time. I think if they established that idea that he was really interested in the the idea behind Michael and his motivation, and that's why he stuck with him through the years, I think that would make his turn more impactful. But they don't really establish that super well. He does just feel like Loomis again. Well, they the only part they do is that he kept getting transferred throughout um, throughout prisons just so he could stay with Michael in some sense. So. So in some way, he devoted his entire career toward following him. Mm-hmm. It just seems weird when they don't establish, like, you know, they specifically say, Michael's never spoken a word in 40 years. Why are you so committed to a person who you aren't getting literally anything out of? Yeah, I think it's just a horror movie device at that point that he's only interested in the in the horror trope of Michael. And that makes him interesting, I guess, but also kind of a one-off. Uh, I don't think there's any room to, any place to go with him. Well, the other interesting thing is after that, we finally get to the conclusion. We come back around to Jamie Lee Curtis, and everyone's going back to, you know, their house or super secret, you know, bunker house or whatever it is. And, you know, we have the final standoff with Michael there. Her house plays as an interesting battlefield because it's a lockdown facility. She's been planning this for 40 years. So she has all kind of uh, traps and uh, different methods to kill Michael inside it. It doesn't feel quite as much as, like, say, you got the kind of Home Alone-esque traps set up in, um, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, you know, I can recall. But there's definitely a lot of preparation that goes into there, all of the rooms that can be locked down. And, I mean, when she hits the button and locks them down, that's like, you know, they come down. Those things seem heavy. Yeah. Uh, it looks like she's prepared strategically. She grabs a fucking, like, a tactical shotgun and... She goes full military in that sequence. It's kind of uh, fun to see her character go there. Mm-hmm. I definitely think. I think they. I wish I. They had kind of focused more on that, though. Again, it's a lot of the problems there was that they have all these ideas for characters, but they never focus on them enough to really establish them fully and allow us to understand the motivation behind it. I think that's probably the problem is that it spends so much time away from her that we forget her grief. Uh, it it only comes full circle in the end, but by then. By then, we've detached and reattached to so many different things that it's it's kind of hard to care about that. One of the things I thought about when watching the film was, you know, another similar character arc and expansion in uh, Sarah Connor in Terminator 2. Because, you know, Terminator is very much a character like Michael, and in Terminator 2, Connor, you know, Sarah Connor has gone through the same kind of grief and, you know, recovery that Laurie Strode is to have in this. She's a total badass preparing for the time that the Terminator comes back in Terminator 2. And that seems to be the angle they went with here, but they don't have that moments, the moments of grief like they do in Terminator 2. I remember, you know, there's specifically that moment where she's breaking out of the, you know, mental facility and going, you know, out towards the elevator. And there she sees the Terminator and she freaks the hell out. She has a panic attack. And there's no real moment like that here. I feel like if... uh... If they played into that in a horror way, like um, going into a delusional PTSD episode where she's freaking out and having a panic attack and we're feeling it in the theater, that could have been a much more interesting way to go. But I feel like this is about showing her strength and in some way women overcoming uh, the evil of men. I feel like it's a shitty thing to do to place all of like uh, the Me Too movement on Michael. That kind of devalues the character to me. 
Yeah, I don't think that's the aspect they necessarily went for in the film. It's not politically motivated, but you can read it that way. And there's some strength to it, but I don't think it applies fully. No. Um, then, then we have the ending, which is... Uh, what do you think of it? Well, um, you know, it's a pretty clear homage to Halloween 2. Again, you know, with the whole everything going up in fire and whatnot, and Michael supposedly being killed by it. Very, very supposedly. Very supposedly. <laughs> but um, overall, it did feel very anticlimactic. Um, especially, you can't Judy Ure again with her awful acting, where she's like... <laughs> supposedly freaking out about not being able to kill Michael, and then he pops back in, and then she just drops it, and she's like, gotcha, and shoots him. Oh, it was awful. And then they finally get him down below the house, and um, then the line is, this isn't a cage, it's a trap. I just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know, there was, again, so, so, so many awful lines in the film, and that was a... Such a weird one. Like, they didn't... If they had maybe established the aspect that she was afraid of going down there because it, you know, potentially was a way of, you know, being stuck, maybe that would have paid off better, but I don't know. It just comes off badly. <laughs> yeah, I'd just say that they don't have the right motivations to for their characters. Mm-hmm. They, uh, okay, so they took away the part of Halloween 2 where Laurie and Michael are brother and sister, right? So there's really no motivation for him to go after her again. Well, that's, that's a confusing thing as well, is, you know, the motivations of the characters here. Michael in particular, why is he coming back specifically for Laurie? You know, in Halloween 2, you understand it's because he's trying to finish killing off his sister, essentially. But we don't have that here. So maybe it's the motivation that she's the, you know, kill that got away, essentially, Halloween 40 years ago. I guess. But, but they don't establish that. That's entirely speculative. You know, that's all I can... I'm grasping at straws trying to think of why specifically, because the whole idea of Michael is that he's just a an emotionless killing machine. He's just killing to fill the void. Um, you know, that's the idea. Well, they, they just have the one line, like, uh, I've been waiting for him, and he's been waiting for me. And there's, like, the explanation about the relationship of prey and predators, but really it's... That's just more exposition. Why not show us something meaningful? Really, yeah. So the, the big problem, I think, the fundamental problem with the film just in the beginning is that they wanted to make a movie about Michael Myers. When really this is a movie about Laurie Strode and her dealing with grief and, you know, anxiety for 40 years. There's a line early on she talks about how she wished, you know, she'd been wishing for 40 years that Michael would break out so she could kill him. And I'm like, you know what would have been even more interesting? If she did that, what if she, like, broke, you know, Michael out specifically to try and kill him and sends his whole, you know, town into a panic again because Michael's on the loose and it's her fault? I guess that's what I wanted because that's what her character comes out as is more of the hunter. So I wish she were hunting him down. If somehow there was some escape for him and then it was about Laurie tracking him down the way that he does to her in H20. And it's hard for me to go... From that to this, because they're the same story, um, without the trauma angle, and I don't think the trauma angle especially worked. Mm-hmm. From a script standpoint, the biggest issue here is that none of the action that propels the story forward is done by characters. Like nobody takes action that like, no, nothing the characters do move the story forward. Things happen, and you know more stuff unfolds. You know, Michael is only broken out of prison because it happens that way. They don't even show it. They just, just say that Michael decided to do it. There's no motivation why. He just did it. 
Yeah, there's like this forgetfulness to the movie. Like, oh, it's been 40 years. Um, maybe we don't need to give top security to this bus full of uh, of terrible inmates who have probably all murdered someone. Um, but then there's also this line by like the one friend early on, like, oh, things have changed. It's different than it was back then. Two, a few murders is nothing. Kids are getting shot up in school. So that that was one interesting thing. I don't think we specifically say anything about kids getting shot up in school, but that was I, the idea behind I it. I think definitely. that's implied, yeah. Yeah, that's the implication, is that there are worse horrors nowadays than there are of five people being killed by one dude 40 years ago, and that is an interesting idea. We're post-9-11 now, and we've seen that the evils of man could be so much greater than stalking a neighborhood. Like, the, the horrors of modern kids is so much greater than it was for kids in the 70s. Right, and like I said early on, you got that that idea, that thematic subtext of the idea that Lori is the monster now because of her trauma. And there are some really, really interesting ideas you could mine, talking about the dismissal of PTSD and how that affects the people around them. Like, if you had a movie about how Lori's craziness drove the town insane for 40 years, which was way worse than any damage Michael did 40 years ago, that would be really interesting. But they don't do that because they just want to redo all of the events from the original Halloween. I do want to stress that if there is a significant part of the movie, it is still her. And that we just needed more of her and needed more of her development. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing is that if they had decided to make a movie about Laurie Strode and you know her relationship to Michael Myers instead of another reason for Michael Myers to come out and kill people again, we would have had something special. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think the one thing where the movie has won me over is it might have the best music in the whole franchise. Mm-hmm. It's definitely in competition for it. I've got a I've got a huge soft spot for the music in Halloween three, but of course it's not as iconic as the original or the stuff here, which is you know doing a lot of new stuff with that same original music. Well, the thing about like Halloween three, it was one of like uh, Carpenter's later synth uh, synth albums, and then here it kind of combines synth with what he would do later, like heavy guitar driven shit and it it changes all the time signatures we get slowed down versions of the original we get uh very dreadful stuff there's like that scene where the kids hung on the gate and we get like this pounding like propulsive synth music it's mm-hmm. all beautiful and well tied in i thought i think the guitar stuff is really the greatest addition to it that hard electric guitar sound that adds to it it really differentiates this from the original uh soundtrack and it adds so much more to it you know that's definitely the one justification i think for the film is bringing carpenter back to make a fantastic score i think my favorite (laughs) my favorite part of the movie is the opening credits where it's just a black screen going in on the pumpkin like halloween 2 well, what's interesting is that it's, it's that, that kind of reversal. Like, there's a there's a thematic idea behind this, the credits, even, is because it starts as a smashed pumpkin, and it slowly comes back to, you know, basically the recreation of the pumpkin in the original credits. So it's, you know, basically what the title is saying is that we're reviving Halloween, we're bringing it back to normalcy. That's the idea they were getting at, anyway. Yeah, the pumpkin's almost inflating from, like, a deflated smashed pumpkin. And Carpenter's score going along with it made me feel so full of nostalgia and made me so warm in a way that none of the the rest of the movie didn't. Like, I think H2O might have one of the lesser soundtracks, but it has, like, a good feeling of autumn to go with it, which I really need for that score. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely the score, I think we can both agree, is the highlight of the film. And we both, uh, in our, you know, our Twin Geeks group, we both listened to the soundtrack multiple times before the movie, so I feel mm-hmm. like we had some impression that, you know, that's a reason to go see it. Definitely, it got me a lot very hyped up listening to it. It may have hurt the film in some instances, I think, just knowing when the soundtrack was going to come up at various points, but, you know, I felt the implementation of it was still fantastic. You know, it didn't hurt it that much. <laughs> well, like, well, I guess the other big uh, elephant in the room to talk about in this is, you know, I noticed during the credits, at least, that there was a lot of producers on this film, and it feels like all of their fingers are in this for sure. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say about Carpenter's influence. Um, I can also feel it around the script somewhat. Uh, I feel like it makes credible associations with the rest of the film in a way that, like, that's good enough to pass off on, but it doesn't tie together entirely. Mm-hmm. I think the the bigger influencer here is definitely the studio, you know, Blum's involvement in things here. There feels like a lot of that Blummy stuff in there. Definitely, I feel that with, like, the various jump scares and whatnot. I feel like Blumhouse has a signature house style, and uh, I feel like it applies very loosely to some of their movies and strongly to the others, and I feel like this one has a little bit more of it than some others. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel that. You don't get the individuality sense of, like, get out, per se, here. I don't feel the individual director voice coming through. And Get Out is the other obvious pairing here of, uh, you know, a Jordan Peele, a comedian making a horror movie that really breaks the norm and is about societal issues in a way that this really wants to be. And so it's trying to follow that formula. I don't think Get Out is formulized, but I think this makes it formulized. That's trying to replicate that within the form of Halloween. There's an interesting thematic here, definitely, like we said, with the ideas of PTSD and dealing with trauma and whatnot. It's at the core of Halloween, but the problem is, is that it has to be a Halloween movie first, so it doesn't do those things. It just kind of mentions them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think my favorite part of the movie was seeing the uh, Happy Death Day trailer before it. <laughs> That trailer was actually very interesting, I have to say. I didn't see the original yet because I heard mixed or so things about it, but since then I've heard a lot more praise for it, and the trailer seems like so much fun. I think we're both... It is... The whole movie is so much fun, and the trailer kind of oversells it as this poppy, kind of egregious, uh, uh, low-culture, kind of lowbrow event, but the actual movie's actually a really good slasher, I thought, and I think we both love uh, Groundhog Day, right? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting that Groundhog Day is becoming a genre now. We got that and Edge of Tomorrow and now Happy Death Day. I want to see more of that. Let's let's think of some other creative ways to implement the Groundhog Day formula into other movies. That's a, that's a hint for the people making the next Halloween that we want Halloween Groundhog Day. <laughs> Just Laurie Strode waking up every day, Michael Myers there, I don't know. <laughs> Reliving her same trauma every day. That would, that would be a good movie. Mm-hmm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> But you need a you need Bill Murray to come in and just drop a, you know, uh, just wake her up every morning and uh, too early for flapjacks. <laughs> uh, I I think it's interesting about the Happy Death Day trailer because it's a uh, it did the same thing with the first one where it had Fifty Cents in the club, you know, Shorty, it's your birthday. Um, but then it replaced it with a with a song it didn't have to license in the actual film. So the trailer still sells something that's 
I don't even think it's representative of the film. I just think it's funny that that it's so subversive that way. Mm-hmm. It's certainly an interesting inconsistency. You know, I wonder if they'll keep it for the actual film itself or they'll revert back to, you know, the original one. I really hope they just do the cheesy ringtone they did in the first one because it's like <laughs> such a fuck you to marketing. But mm-hmm. um, well, I'm getting back. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I don't know what uh, I don't know what kind of oversight Blumhouse had for Halloween, but I feel like they caused edits that I wouldn't be very happy with, and that uh, it's taken a different direction. It sort of exists within a vacuum of just Halloween movies and. Let's make it a profitable sequel off one of those. Yeah, I think a lot of that come, you know, it kind of stems from the initial writing. Like, the film feels flawed from the get-go, but certainly it was not helped by any kind of studio additions or anything, you know, cutbacks. Yeah, I feel like the big thing now with the Blumhouses and everyone else is you have to make things political. They have The Purge, they have Get Out, they have, uh, you know, from another studio, way of assass- Assassination Nation recently and these movies are all about giving political ties to things that youth are actually concerned about people feel a horror when they see uh, politics and they that's what's scaring uh modern audiences and i find that pretty interesting definitely i think there's, i think there's something to say about it is that it's not, i don't think it's so much something that's mandated in many of the cases but it's just the politics seeping into our films because there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily paying attention to that kind of thing so it's more of a wake-up call you know there's definitely some instances like probably a lot of in halloween here where it's forced in you know it doesn't feel natural but i don't think that's any means to be dismissive of it entirely i don't think uh, i don't think it's worth dismissing outright but um i feel like we should be able to have slashers that just do their own thing and uh um I feel like it's inevitable that politics will eventually be reflected by the people who make the things if they're that passionate about them. Mm-hmm. But hopefully it is that because they're passionate about it, not because that's what people respond to, because that's very fake and it only makes things worse. That's what I'm missing here, to tell you, that they're, uh, that they're, they don't, I don't see what the passion is. I don't see what I'm supposed to get from her trauma, and I don't see what it's supposed to tell me about men. Mm-hmm. especially it's definitely missing that again it you know it feels like they want to have that idea there but they don't actually put in the effort to pull out any significant um you know conversation about any of the politics or you know trauma or any aspect of it going on there it feels like a michael myers film first Absolutely. and foremost and in the in like the overall structure of myers films how would you place this in the franchise? You've only well, seen a couple, right? Yeah, I've only seen a couple, but I've read about them all, you know, kind of in preparation for this and whatnot. And this feels a little lesser. I mean, probably still in the middle-ish area. It's not terrible, necessarily, but it's I mean, my issues are more so in its execution. Like I said, one of my biggest issues was the cinematography. Awful. But, you know, in, in general, it, it's got good moments, plenty of good moments in there. They're just not enough to balance out the bad. So... Very middling as far as the Halloween film. I feel like we've had a lot of places where it intersects with some of the old ones. Um, I don't think it has a lot of particular interest. I don't think in five years I'm going to come back to this one and and think uh, it's a very interesting or even valuable uh, contribution to the series. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it seems like one of the biggest things as well is that, you know, I heard a lot of this beforehand, is that it's a lot like H20. And it, you know, seems like that based on the plot, but from what I've heard as well, H20 just seems to have a better thing to do in the end. Especially in terms of the confrontation between Michael and Laurie, which was very lackluster here. I think I'd place it right around Halloween 5 area. Um, just uh, generally uh, fun, but uh, ultimately not very fulfilling um, entry into the franchise. Mm-hmm. Definitely so. So, probably in the middle area. Um, I know, as with its success, it's probably going to get a sequel. Which is almost unfortunate, I think, because of the lack of quality here. Who knows? Maybe someone will take up the mantle and make it interesting. But I have, uh, I have pretty strong uh, doubts about the sequel being even as good as this mm-hmm. one. I feel like, uh, I feel like this will open a floodgate for slashers, which will at least bring us some interesting takes. Because uh, it's definitely proven a market. It would be absolutely yep. absurd not to make a sequel at this point. Definitely. I know they've already greenlit a Friday the 13th film, uh, you know, reboot, which I don't know if that'll be any good. I mean, not really particularly, but who knows? You know, there's definitely a fan base. All they announced there was that they had their original writer in LeBron James. Like, a, like the two things I like about Friday are LeBron James <laughs> and the writing. Fuck's sake. Right. Uh, it's not exactly enticing yet, is it? No, no, neither of those things I want. Get these things out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have any final thoughts about the movie? You know, just that I think one of the, the biggest issues, even on my end, is that I hype myself up seriously for the film. Coming back, it looked great. You know, the trailers were really enticing. The score, I was so happy to have Carpenter back involved, but it just did not meet my expectations in any capacity. There was a couple of good things that I liked, but overall, I think I'd just rather watch the one take again than the actual film itself. Yeah, the, about the same for me, that I found it was a pretty middling version of Halloween. I think the score might be my favorite of the franchise, and that might elevate it a bit over the uh, middling kind of Me Too movement, um, uh, shallow explore, exploration of trauma that I think the movie is. Um, I don't think there's a lot of depth or weight to it, and... Uh, I'm only looking forward to revisiting it um, when they have an extended take on Blu-ray. I don't yep. think I'll ever watch this version again. Even then, I, I don't know how much an extended take will add to it. It would be interesting to see what was cut out, but it won't save the film by any means. Yeah, I feel like there are some things that could be explained with editing, but overall, um, overall, I'm not a huge fan of this one. Uh, I'd at least wait for a video on demand. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's pro- bound to come to some streaming platform, I'm sure, but I mean, you can rent it otherwise if you're interested. No need to go to the theater, though. It's making enough money. Uh, speaking of video on demand, what are you watching lately? <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a transition? Well, let's just go over a couple things. Uh, going off Halloween, I just saw a Trick or Treat for the first time. I know it's one of uh, your kind of perennial Halloween movies. Yeah, you know, I was first introduced to it from my fiancé as well, which she loved, and it's got a really fun idea. It is kind of like Halloween in the sense that it's a, you know, it's got the Halloween 3 concept going where it's just a bunch of stories kind of put together, all centric to Halloween. One of the interesting aspects of it as well is how they all tie into each other in the background of things. 
yeah, it's cool to see how the stories overlap. There's four different storylines going on, and I kind of like the burlap sack boy, but uh, there's um, there's a few of them that are interesting, but I have I have reservations about it. I think it's a very fun Halloween film, and it's one of the only ones that really treats the holiday the way we treat Christmas, which is like, if you don't celebrate, if you're not getting into it, then you're dead. Right. It's definitely very, you know, celebratory of Halloween, which is one of the strongest aspects of it. As you said, not all the stories are strong. I feel like the the weakest one in my mind is the werewolf one with Anna Paquin and all them. It ends, you know, that's one ends with this really odd moment with the, the Marilyn Manson song as well. <laughs> it is it is such a weird uh, version of that song. And uh, I mean, it's such a, I mean, I feel like it fit the scene. But it was trying to sexualize women turning into werewolves in a way that I wasn't really buying into. But it was still yeah. kind of like cultish interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess we're, well, the other weird thing about it is that they have the, you know, like the guy they prey on is the principal character from the earlier story. And that felt out of character for him to kind of have, like, go into the street like that. And it ruins a bit of his story for me because his is one of the better ones, I think, with the, the pumpkin thing. Yeah, I think I'd prefer for his story to have kept going in a different direction. Mm-hmm. He didn't been... need to go off that way. No. And then, <laughs> well, I think the other damaging thing about it is that it kind of, um, like, takes away, like, 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 it kind of makes up for his crime, essentially. He's punished, which is lame, because that's, you know, kind of the whole point is that he's unpunished in his story. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, did you have anything this week that stood out to you? One of the big things I watched uh, just this morning, I finished watching uh, Gods and Monsters, which was interesting uh, coming off of just watching Bride of Frankenstein earlier. Uh, Gods and Monsters is a biopic about the last couple days of horror director James Whale. He did a lot of the Hammer, uh, not, not Hammer, um, Universal Horror stuff. He did, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, Old Dark House. And what was interesting yeah. is seeing his performance from uh, Ian McKellen. I haven't seen that, but I'm very interested in a horror biopic, especially. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's not so much about the horror itself, but his life, you know, and kind of how he lived out in isolation. You know, he was a um, a gay man in his, you know, throughout his life, and he was kind of a bit ostracized for that. And that worked perfectly in, you know, the case of Ian McKellen playing him, because he is also, you know, gay himself. So he really identified with that, and the performance really comes through. It's a really strong film singularly for that performance not so much on his supporting and with uh brendan frazier who plays the kind of hot pool boy that he's looking at well that sounds pretty decent uh to go off that i also have the happy prince which i saw uh at the twist festival here in seattle um it's about the last the last days of oscar wilde uh, rupert everett who also connects with this um gay man story about uh Kind of what society did to men back then who were having relations with other men. Um, he was put into a work camp for two years, uh, punished for being gay, essentially. That's interesting that we ended up both watching such a similar films in terms of that. I guess that's also a testament to the you know, similarity of you know, those kind of people went through. And I mean, it's called The Happy Prince, but nobody at all is ever happy in the movie. Uh, right. <laughs> it has like an acerbic wit. Uh, it's more about Oscar Wilde's story about how um, improving and enriching society can uh, create a more level playing field and 
kind of turned us against disparities uh, of wealth because it was during a time where children were being kind of enslaved uh, to work in factories and I think it has a lot of social good to it. So I recommend uh, maybe checking that out. Mm -hmm. Definitely so. All right. Well, do we know what we are looking forward to for next week? I think we're both watching Legend, right? Yeah, I think that's the idea. The 1985 one, not the newer Tom Hardy one. <laughs> yeah, right. Years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll no, be looking yeah. at the Ridley Scott one, uh, kind of dissecting what a weird film that is and how many versions it went through. I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah, there's a lot of history to it. All very interesting, and the movie itself is actually you know fun to watch. It's a you know favorite of mine to watch, but definitely not for everybody. You know, it's it's controversial. 